Well, the year is 1999, and um, what was going on in 1999? Uh, let me tell you. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kevorkian was convicted of second-degree murder. Wow. Who knew? Uh, I didn't know a second-degree. Legoland opened down in Carlsbad. Um, what else happened? The Matrix premiered. The movie The Matrix, Whoa. 1999, and Gwyneth Paltrow won an Academy Award for an eminently forgettable movie, Shakespeare in Love. Who remembers that movie? I never saw it. Might be the most forgotten Academy Award winning movie of all time. But that is all, that's all enmeshed in that whole Weinstein thing, right? Well, and Al Gore must have been running for president in 99. Must have been mid-campaign, probably. Yeah, 1999. And on the charts, it was, you know what? I just used the phrase, I'll use it again, an eminently forgettable chart. In March of 1999, wow. I mean, some of the some we had some people on the charts who were really good, but it was like their worst songs. So Aretha Franklin was in the top top 15, but it was can't go wrong with Aretha Franklin. Who zooming who? What the f- <laughs> it, we had we had uh, we had um, Stevie Wonder, right? Yeah. Part time lover, like what? You know, like what? some of the worst hey, songs. Even weak Stevie Wonder and weak Aretha Franklin still is hard to. <sighs> that's right up there with the best of everyone else. Whitney you know? Houston, Heartbreak Hotel. I couldn't hum that if you paid me. Is it a cover of the Elvis song? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Angel of Mine by Monica was the number two song. I've never heard that song. Never heard of Monica. Never heard that song. I've heard of Monica because I think she dated somebody and got beat up. Well, I got to. Okay, so I got to confess. 1999, I was in college. I was. I was probably less engaged. I'm sorry, 1999, I was in college. I was probably less engaged in music, (laughs) popular music, like actual, like this kind of music, Mm -hmm. than at any point in my life. So didn't own a TV, wasn't working at a record store anymore, and I was in college working my ass off. So so this is all going to be vaguely like, oh, I vaguely remember this. (laughs) Well, look, I was all into it, and I don't even remember half of these songs (laughs) because they were so lame. I mean, I was listening to a lot of music, but it wasn't apparently what was at the top um, of the charts. Nobody's supposed to be here by Deborah Cox. Like, who remembers that song? I don't. This was the top ten. I, this is just first time in my life I've even yeah. heard the words Deborah Cox. So. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. So, so anyway, but Look, what her mom remembers it, David. What, what we're here to talk about, though, okay. is the number one song, and that song is a song that has lived on and on and on, and that is "Believe" by Cher. song is maybe as played today in certain places as it was then. I mean, well, and I got to tell you, so when when you talked about doing this song, I had to listen to it. Think, do I know that? I think I know that song. And I listened to it. And of course I know that song because it was inescapable. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't realize that it was a share song because it doesn't sound like it doesn't a share sound song. Like a share song really. no. I mean, I, I'm old. I mean, I wasn't hearing share when it was Sunny and Cher first run, but I remember watching the Sunny and Cher television show when it was on in the seventies. Yeah. She has a real distinctive voice, and that song, for multiple reasons I'm sure we'll get yeah. into, does not really sound like no. traditional share. It doesn't sound like half-breed, you know? Yeah. And um, so that's what we're here. Welcome to How the F*** Was That a Hit? I'm David Quintana with my partner, Tim Foster. I'm kind of the cultural guy. Tim is the actual real live musician, plays a guitar. What else do you play? I play harmonica a little bit, and then I sing occasionally. Do you? So, Like, what's your what's your jam when you sing? 
Oh, you know, I sing like rock and roll stuff. Uh, I mean, basically, I'm in a punk rock band that sort of is a, an amalgam of like, what if the Yardbirds and Sex Pistols were the same band? That's kind of like our, like, you know, really high energy, but kind of sounds like a mid-60s record. <laughs> That's the, funny. The, the genre is called garage punk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So. Garage punk. Yeah, of course. So. Yeah, big, big, uh, big sellers. <laughs> Storm it. Storm it the charts. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're here to talk about Believe and how the f*** was that a hit. Now, I know a lot of you are saying that, oh, well, of course that's a hit. I mean, listen to it, right? Well, no. You just heard the top 10. The top 10 was pretty damn sappy. This was not sappy. Even well, And also, how old was Cher was when 52. that thing hit the charts? She was 52 years old. Her you know, career, so let's get into this, right? Yeah, well, 52 years old in the context of, like, the Billboard charts is, like— 15 years past dead. I think know? she was probably Unless you're basically Louis Armstrong or Helen Wolf. You know, you're not going to be charting when you're you're ancient. Well, I think she was probably— Mind 30, you, I'm older than 52 right now, but— <laughs> I uh, think she was probably 39 years older than Monica, who had the number two song. Yeah, there you go. So, there you go. And her last hit, her last number one hit had been in 1974, which was Dark Lady. I thought she had a hit in the 80s. I she, she it had, didn't go to number one. Uh, she had in 1989, she had Turn Back Time. Yeah, that was. Right. And that was like a movie soundtrack thing or something. Um, was, it? was it? I don't know. Was it, it was a mermaid or something? Movie. Or I don't know. Asking the wrong guy. Dude. Uh, turn back time, uh, and that was a big hit. It went to number three, and that was her comeback. And then everybody's like, "Oh, Cher is back, 1989." Little did they know. Although I will say, Cher may have been back in the sense of the Billboard charts. Cher was back big at that point. She was in the movies. Like she successfully transitioned yeah. from being a pop star in the '60s. Pop star in the 70s, then had a TV show that was pretty successful for several years in the 70s and was, you know, Vegas residency, the whole thing. And then she just amazingly got, I think she was in some, like, Academy Award-winning films. Yeah. She did really well. It was a very kind of surprising uh, journey for her. People were aware of her still. She just wasn't really making a lot right. of pop Right. Well, records. people at that time, different generations had different views of who Cher was. Yeah. Right? So Cher had come up in 19, I think her first hit was in 1965 with Sonny and Cher. Right. Um, Sonny Bono. And I think he was like 11 years older than her. And she was born Sherilyn Sarkisian in El Centro. El Centro, California, that little gas station on I-8 as you head to Mexico um, <laughs> and or, you know, New Mexico, whichever you choose, or Arizona, rather. Um, that's that's where she's from. Yeah. I wonder how many people knew she was from El Centro, California. Every person in El Centro. Yeah. <laughs> Do they, though? They probably, I don't know. I, probably a statue to share. <laughs> yeah. you know, there is. There should be. You know, if there's a god, they should change their name to, like, Cherville. Because, I mean, it, it, nothing else has come out of El Centro. Um, God, uh, uh, I'm going to get killed for that. Yes. Yeah, well, and you yeah. never know. I mean, yeah, for all something. we know, there was somebody on like, John Bon Jovi, I was born in El Centro. I, yeah, I actually yeah, don't who know. Knows. It's interesting reading up on her a little bit. Her family, her her biological father and her mom split up when she was very young. I, I think maybe before she was a year. They moved around a lot. And at some point, by the time Cher went into high school, she came, went to a new high school because they had relocated somewhere. And her, they've interviewed her friends who just said when Cher showed up in this high school, she was just a teenager like everyone else. But they were like, this is a person who will be a movie star or a celebrity. Like they already knew. There was already something about her that was way different than all of them. So she, and she in interviews has said that she was already thinking like, well, do I want to be an actress? Do I want to be a pop star? Do I want to? Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to be 
in that world from the time she was a child. I think the keys to her success are that she has this incredible sense of self. She knows who she is, and it gives her just an, an, an just an amazing amount of confidence. And you see it even at the young age yeah. as a late teenager or early or early 20s in the 60s in 1965, just the way she stands there and flips her hair around, you know, she's very confident. And people dug it. Well, and she also, I mean, the flip side of this, she's she was a very unique singer. Her the the I'm not even sure this is right, but the timber of her voice is very kind of darker and kind of heavier. Certainly most pop people of the 60s, pop women, were not really doing that. They had a real high kind of, I would say almost like birdish voice. And she did not. She had this much deeper tone. Yeah, so the Sonny and Cher show ran from 71 to 74. Oh, okay. And it was really, really popular. Yeah. I mean, 30 million. It, it, unfortunately, it ended because they got a divorce and she went off and married Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers. Um, okay. And so they had the, the show left the air. Um, but during this period from, from 71 to 74, she was getting huge hits on her own. Now she was getting hits on her own without, not Sonny and Cher, right. but she created a solo career. She had three number one hits in this period, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, right, right which was in 71. Um, 73, she had Half Breed. And 74, she had Dark Lady. But if you look at those songs, they're all kind of mid-tempo, rocky, maybe story songs, yeah. right? Songs with a story. Very, very, very different than what we're going to talk about. And so that brings us to 1998 um, in London because she had been dropped by her by her, by her her record label. And so she was picked up by Warner UK. So she was spending a lot of her time in London. So her, she's been dropped by her label. She hasn't had a hit in 10 years, right, with, since Take Me Home. She hasn't had a number one hit since 1974, since Watergate. She has not had a number one hit with Dark Lady in 1974. I was going to say, she had a song called Watergate? No, no, <laughs> since Watergate. Um, so, but, I mean, let's not get it twisted. She was yeah. doing great. Yeah. I mean, she's a movie star. She's, you know, she's uh, she's doing the residencies in Las Vegas. I mean, yeah. she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. She's doing fine. But she's an artist. She is an artist. And artists have to create art, right? Yeah. And so I think she's still got the bug. Um, so she's in London hanging out a lot and, um, little does she know, but something that happened a year before that is going to play a big role in her life. And what happened a year before that was a scientist named Andy Hildebrand. He was really a genius that what the invention that he made was something that no one ever thought was possible. And so he kind of created a system. He went off, he was working for the oil companies and then he went off and created his own company and he really perfected the algorithms in how they can really do detailed mapping using sound waves and signals. He did well. He, he created a system, sold it to Halliburton for hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Yeah. And so Andy is doing well. He was at a lunch with a colleague because guys like this can't stand still for a while, right? Right. And he was like, what can I do next? What can I do next? And a colleague of his uh, – a wife of one of his colleagues said – well, maybe you can help me sing in tune. And he was like, really? Hmm. Because here's the other thing about Andy. Andy was also a music virtuoso as a child with the flute. And in fact, his engineering studies had all been paid for by musical scholarships. And he said, hey, you know what? I use sounds. I create algorithms for sounds. Right. And um, I have to, you know, manipulate the pitches 
from these out from these sound, you know, these signals to create the algorithms so I can get the precise depths. Hmm. Let me see. You know, that, that might not be a bad idea. He says it himself, which is, he says, I've never explained what creates auto-tune right. and have someone completely understand it. He says, so what I usually tell people is I create magic. So what auto-tune does, according to Andy, and this was a illustration that he had, um, imagine you hear lightning. Mm-hmm. Now, you would go take that lightning, right, that lightning bolt, and the mm-hmm. sound that you hear from the lightning, you would then create algorithms based upon that lightning bolt sound, right, to tell you the shape of the clouds around the lightning bolt. That's, Which that, kind of is, I think, how bats fly a little yeah, bit. Maybe, yeah. You know, they, so, they do the sonic, the bounce, sonic bounce, and they kind of know where things are. So his, his algorithms do that. But not only do they do that, People thought that was possible before, but it would have taken about a million um, uh, ads. Let's just call the term ad. I think it's multiple ads. Mm -hmm. Um, It would have taken a million multiple ads. Through the algorithms and through statistics, he was able to reduce it to four. Wow. So it made it, it made a, um, you know, the way he created the autotune is it made it actually something that was useful. Could have been done before, but it would have taken a million add-ons. Wow. Yeah, or multiple ads. Because most singers don't even really have that much of a range, frankly. You know, just like their normal singing voice. So that's a lot. That's very impressive. So in 1997, Antares Audio Technologies released Mm Autotune. And that was in 97. In 98, we have Cher in London. And she her her project was sent to something that was called Metro Studios. Mm-hmm. So Metro Studios, those were the production, that was the production house that was assigned by Warner UK to put her next record together. At the same time, there was a song that had been floating around for about six years. It was written by a guy named Brian Higgins. Six years. Six years. 92, he had written the song. Other people had tweaked it. Other people had taken it. They'd added verses, removed verses, played with the melody. I, I mean, I'm not, you're a musician. I'm not a musician. Does that ha- is that common with certain songs? They float you know, around? I, I would say it's probably very common for professional songwriters who are working with really high-level artists. I'd say it's probably much less common when you're, you know, starting out or if you're in a, a rock band context. Although I, what I will say happens that if any of any of our listeners watch the Let It Be movie, uh, or not Let It Be movie, the, the Get Back movie, which is the Let It Be sessions with Beatles, you'll see them kind of working out arrangements and they'll work out uh, vocal harmonies and they'll work out things changing. And I think that is very common within the band context, but it's it's more informal. Mm -hmm. But I do believe the professional songwriters, they'll probably recognize, hey, this has a kernel of something, but I'm not really getting it where it needs to go. And maybe they work with a colleague and turn that over. And I imagine that that's that's common. I know that there was a, Beyonce just had a recent record that had, I'm not going to remember this, something like 30 co-writers. And I think they had, Everyone, you know, put their little spin on it and they got a little teeny chunk of writing credit. And so I think that in, you know, at the higher level, it's probably a little more common. Mm-hmm. Well, this this song by Brian Higgins, um, again, has six, at, at the end of the day, it had six writers mm-hmm. and three producers. And that's just because it had wow. been floating around for so long. But in 1998, and the reason we're saying 1998, but it was number one in the U.S. in 1999 is because the song was actually released in 98 in the U.K. And it was a massive hit in the U.K. before it was even released in the United States. Interesting. But we don't need to get into that. 
Um, so, but in 1998, it reached Metro Productions, which was, again was the production house that was going to put together. And they had two young producers, Brian Rawling and Mark Taylor. And Brian Rawling and Mark Taylor had bought the uh, Auto Tune, right? They had purchased oh. Auto Tune, and they are, you know, because they, they worked, they did a lot of work with Warner, right? right? And so by now, everybody was feeling they had to have Warner, they had to have the Auto Tune simply for the pitch. Um, uh, the pitch fixing, right? Right. To fix pitches and and make it, but people were kind of keeping it. It was a dirty secret. They did have synthesizers. So in the old days, they would take your voice, they would take parts of your voice, right? Like one bit at a time, move it to a synthesizer, fix it on a synthesizer, move it back to the master, right? But that would take forever. Yeah. Auto tune the engineer could do it right there. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know I've been looking for you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know I've been looking for you. Well, I imagine it was probably semi-automatic. Like it just ran through and it probably just correct. You know, yeah. I'm sure it just flattened out. Now here I'm not technologically technologically savvy, but my guess is that the probably the process runs through and it realizes it follows that. And I could tell from the algorithm whether or not it's something you're intentionally doing, like a warble, like someone like Aretha Franklin would do, versus you're just going out of pitch. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're driving around and you intentionally make a left turn versus you're not paying attention and you start drifting into the median. You know, I think it's probably working that way and kind of sorting it out in the digital mix. Yeah, right. They just put on a program. Yeah. It just keeps you in the lane. Um but so this had been a year after it had, it had been released, right? And and Rawlings and Taylor had it in their studio. Mm-hmm. On the song Believe, everybody loved the chorus. Everybody hated the verses. So they rewrote the verses again um, at, at the Metro Productions. That's why we have six writers at the end of the day. Um, and they presented it to Cher. Cher um, just wasn't, wasn't feeling. She was feeling the song. She felt, as she said, she felt the chorus. Mm. Um, wasn't really feeling the verses. So they kept tweaking the verses. Um, but she wasn't really like doing it. It wasn't reaching the top. She wanted to produce a song to give something back to her big gay following, right? Yeah. A dance song, but yet not lose her rock followers, right? Although so she, did she ever, she really didn't have, she had pop followers. She believed she did. Well, she, she referred to him as rock, but I think people yeah. refer to it as rock I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. They wanted to make a dance song, but not make it too dancey, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, she wasn't feeling it. It was just one of those days in the studio where yeah. they just felt like, that's awesome. You're share. We get it. But we're just not hitting it. And she she understood, right? And then she said, you know what? I was watching a morning show with this guy, Roachford, and he was using a vocoder. And I really like that effect. Why don't we try that? And they were like, well, vocoder doesn't work because you would have had to have recorded it like that, right? There's nothing we can do to add a vocoder to it now. Um, but we do have this little thing here. Interesting. That now that is fascinating. You know, and this is really the way advances in like culture and technology happen is someone is like, hey, here's this thing that's designed for one thing. Let's use it for a totally the opposite thing mm-hmm. that anyone, you know, like uh you know, like originally when they invented electric guitars for like fender guitars, amps, they never ever thought anyone was going to distort them. They're like, why would anyone want to overdrive? Like all of the rock and roll music we've all heard has the amps playing too loud. And it was an accident. It was something that the, the musicians wanted to do. And it sounds like she was kind of the same thing. Like, hey, you know, what if we use this thing that's supposed to clean up my vocal and 
torch my vocal. Yeah, well, th- so they said, we have this new machine, yeah. right? This new this new technique, this auto-tune. Um, but she didn't really didn't need her pitch corrected, right? Because right. she shared, and she was she was great. She was she sounded how she was supposed to sound. Right. It just wasn't, uh, wasn't fitting. Um, so they said, so what Hildebrand, let's go back a second. What Hildebrand had done, Hildebrand had created a dial on the auto-tune that went from 1 to 10. Right. Because you had low to high, right? And so the sound lengths, the length, the lengths of sound for each of these notes are, are different based upon high or low. But then just quote unquote for kicks, he put on what he called the zero setting. And the zero setting paid no attention to what your what your note was, right? Mm-hmm. What your pitch was, whether it was high or low. It just had an immediate effect on your voice. Interesting. And it created that robotic sound. So he put what he called the zero setting. So the auto-tone goes from 1 to 10, plus there is a zero setting. And the zero setting is the robotic setting put on there as a joke, just for kicks. Didn't expect anyone ever to use it. And they said, Rawlings and Taylor said, well, we can use this new auto-tune thing on you, but we don't need to correct your pitch. Let's try this. And so they put it on the zero setting. Right. And that's how we get that famous chorus of the belief. Now, they only used it on certain parts. Yeah. So if you use it... She and he sure used it right at the beginning. Because when used, she oh, yeah. comes in, boy, does it sound like something you haven't heard before. Yeah, and they use it like on believe, but yeah. not the whole word believe. Uh, the second part of the word believe. Yeah. Um, so they use it very judiciously. And um, she heard it, and they stopped it, and they all high-fived each other. They were like, what the hell have we done? This is amazing. And so that is how Believe became Believe. Now, they all loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. They gave it to the record company. And the record company goes, this sounds awesome. We love this. This is going to be a big dance hit. You got to remove that stupid effect thing. Yeah. And so she told the record producers, or the she told the label, I'm not redu- I will redu- you will remove this over my dead body. I asked for this. Hmm. It sounds amazing. You're leaving this in or I'm out. And they left it in. And she was sure, so they left it in. Yeah, she was sure, so they <laughs> left it in. But you know what? She was sure, and she was right. Yeah. Because that woman has reintroduced herself to generation after generation because she has that inherent eye for, like, what's next, right? What's what's kind of the next thing? What should I look for next? What sounds good? She's got an ear, yeah. right? It's that so, El Centro ear. <laughs> picked up in the streets of El Centro. Exactly. Um, so then, as we know, as we mentioned earlier, Believe became the biggest hit by any woman in the history of the United Kingdom, right? It was the number one song of the year, by far her number one song, number one song everywhere. It was the longest running dance hit, you know, uh, in the United States in history. So, you know, the legacy uh, of the song itself was huge. Then, of course, the legacy of the technology was huge because now everyone saw this not as just a pitch correction, but as an actual effect. Yeah. And as you know, over the next couple of decades, everyone was using it um, as an effect. And still to this day do. Right. Although they use it also just for its intended purpose, which is to uh, correct your vocal. So, 
So, in fact, a, a, another funny thing about this is that in the years after, and even the maker of AutoTune, he he acknowledges it was actually not called AutoTune; it was called the Share Effect. People would ask for the Share Effect. Oh yeah, they're like, oh yeah, we want to do this, but can you put that Share Effect in it? Yeah, isn't that wild? She's like fifty four. And people are right. You got eighteen year olds in the studio, right? Going, hey, we want that share effect. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, they couldn't have her career because yeah. that would have been amazing. Well, maybe someday they will. Some right now, there's some eighteen year old in El going Centro. Have, yeah, in El Centro, it's going to you know still be making records thirty five years later, and you know still doing stuff. So, so what do you think the legacy of that? I, you know, I'm torn. I mean, I a lot of my friends that play music, they really dislike auto-tune and they dislike all of those effects and things like that. But I have a little more of a sort of broad view of it. Like I look at like every rock and roll record of the last 40 years probably has probably run or every major one, I should say they've run that guitar into a pedal or into the board and process the living hell out of it. And we all take that for granted and think, you know, they don't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem that the guys from Led Zeppelin are running their guitar into a pedal, uh, you know. But if you process someone's vocal, you yeah, know, the they're difference? like, oh, what is this? And I think that's, you know, I think that's just a little bit of a bias that's it's unfair. It's a different thing. I mean, it's not really my area of interest, but I think it's a legitimate thing. And and probably by this time, what's going on with autotune is probably the least of the modifications that are being you. made. I, I mean, totally first, agree. I mean, so much of today's music, I'm there. Many of the, the songs we all listen to or that you hear, there are no actual physical instruments at all. Right. It's all either synthesizers or it's just a, a sample of something. So, I mean, you were at a point where there may not even be singers Right. That far in the future, they may just be creating songs by having a sample AI. of someone's, yeah, yeah. AI is some, right. someone's voice that was recorded, you know, and then they just, just sample it and you play it on a keyboard. Uh, you know, we're probably not that far from that. So at that point, uh, this argument over autotune and what, what its legacy is will seem very quaint. So should it have been a hit? I think so. I mean, it's, again, I'll say the same thing I said before, is that underneath of all of the autotune and everything else, there's a song there. Mm -hmm. There is a catchy song that still works. If you get somebody in an acoustic guitar singing that song and they know how to sing well and project well, it's still there. It's yeah. different, but I mean, there's still something there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then you put on top of that, you have someone like Cher who can really project a vocal performance and you have a pretty inventive producer and you see why it was a huge hit. You really do. Yeah, I agree. It, 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 I've heard vocal, I've heard acoustic versions of this and you can really hear the beauty of the chorus. Uh, the verses need a little work still, <laughs> uh, but the chorus is amazing. And that melody, just once you hear it, you'll hum it for the rest of your day. So, I mean, you'll, yeah, honestly, I'm humming it in my freaking head right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it should have been a hit. Um, and Cher, her voice was perfect for it. The, I think the I think the, the technique worked yeah. in this case um, in the judicious use that they that they applied it. Well, and, and honestly, I think one of the things that they did there is if Cher had just reduced, uh, released another record and it was a dance record. It would have gotten some attention because she was Cher, because she had had such a huge career. But 
by doing this incredibly aggressive processing on her voice, it got a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And luckily for her and for the producers, the song and the performance stood up to that scrutiny. And so it got all this attention and people liked it. And so it, it was basically like free marketing. Like people, can you believe what Cher did? Can you believe this this weird processing? So people wanted to hear it and, it, and I think it then it had a life of its own. But I think that decision to take such a risk, really, when your own record company is telling you don't do this and you just say, let's do it, that's a risk. Yeah. And I think that that risk paid off for them. Oh, it paid off very well for the record company. Yeah. Um, and should it be a hit today? Yeah. Uh, my my opinion? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, that style of dance music is still very popular, especially in Europe. And in other places, they still play that style of dance music in dance places. So, um, yeah, so I, I do think it would be hit today. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, to me, it really does not sound all that different than the music that's being produced today. I think that there has been, like, in the last 20-something years, there has been a sort of a consolidation of styles. And we don't have, you know, pop music used to be much more... Uh, driven by styles and, and things that would change. And I feel like there's a lot more flexibility now, partly because people can find whatever they want on the internet. So it's not like, you know, one company or whatever can control what's going on there. People can find whatever. And so I feel like it is, it still sounds contemporary. Yep. I agree. So thank you all for listening today. And if you have any suggestions for Tim and I to cover um, any songs, I mean, I, I get, get them from people in my life all the time. I know you keep asking for Bow to the Green Ballet Berets by Sergeant Barry <laughs> yeah, Sadler, right. but... Yeah. Uh, right. Um, all right, man. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot, and we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you. But after all is said and done, you're gonna be the lonely one. Oh, do you believe in life after love? Something inside me say I really don't